ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, good afternoon and happy Monday. Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour this week. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a massive trade deal between Australia and the European Union looks doomed as negotiations break down. And you'll hear the reaction from the National Farmers Federation in this half an hour. And are you someone who uses drones on your property? We'll find out why CASA wants to know about how farmers are utilising drone technology. You know, 10 years ago, we weren't probably even talking about drones, but now we see such an exponential growth in this field and we see a lot of benefits for farming and land management applications. That's all to come. But first today, well, harvest is starting to ramp up for many and the lineups at the silos are starting to get longer. So how is this year's harvest panning out for tea ports based at Lucky Bay and Wallaroo? Tim Gurney is the Manager for Business Development and Client Relations at Teaports. He says things will really get busy after the weekend's good weather conditions. The Air Peninsula supply chain's probably pushing, you know, 10% or above uh, through through harvest, so um, probably a little bit more for those guys on the upper upper EP. You know, and Wallaroo's probably sitting at, you know, around 5%, you know, given they're a couple of weeks behind the Air Peninsula with the weather that's and, and the and the seeding dates. So, yeah, it's certainly, certainly going to ramp up and uh, looking forward to it. Where did the first loads come from? Um, into Lucky Bay, around Cow, yeah, yep. And then obviously Lock started um, from loads uh, from probably north of Lock around Warrnambool um, and, and Wallaroo, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So, um, you know, the ops teams, they're... Uh, they're raring to go, um, they're well trained, um, we've got plenty of staff on the sites ready to go, so yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting time of the season. Wallaroo, obviously uh, the, the new site, how, how is that going with uh, the first loads coming through? Yeah, excellent. Um, we're receiving barley, wheat and lentils at the moment. Um, you know, we had 165 growers um, support us at Wallaroo last season, um, so looking to certainly get more growers in and, and um, you know, thank those growers for their support and, and hope to see more growers through this, this year. And the same with uh, with Lucky Bay, you're expecting more um, this year. That's been growing uh, year on year as, as you've been going along? Yeah, I don't think we'll top last year. That was one out of the box. Um, but, you know, I, I guess if you're asking what the season is looking like, uh, it's probably average, maybe 5% above average versus last year being... 30% above average, you know, um, crazy year last year, fantastic, but it'd be nice to have a, a run of years like that, no doubt. How'd you go finding staff for this harvest? Uh, it was actually a bit easier now that um, the whole, you know, COVID-19 thing's um, put behind us. Um, I think we had, we needed nearly 200 staff, we had, you know, up to 800 applicants, so yeah, it was a, an easy, easier task this year versus, you know, two or three years ago. And mainly locals, or, or like you said, with COVID restrictions sort of almost gone now, you can sort of start getting those uh, travellers in and, and people like that? Yeah, we do get a lot of grey nomads, a um, few travellers, but try and employ as many locals as we can. You know, the, the, the grey nomads are really good. Um, you know, they've got some great business experience and we've also got some backpackers, obviously, um, and they're returnees, so, you know, they're, they're starting to get some good experience behind them. You mentioned there you've got wheat, barley and lentils mainly coming in at the moment. What's quality been like? What are people getting? Quality's been pretty good. It's um, probably a mixed bag versus last year, um, given the, you know, the wet season last year, but, 
you know, certainly uh, seeing a lot more H1 and H2 high protein around the place um, versus last year. Um, and some malting barley come through as well, so that's been pleasing for us beer drinkers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and the the sites as well that you've got set up uh, around the Air Peninsula, they're all, all up and, and rearing and good to go? Yeah, yeah, Kimber and Lock, um, you know, they're well advanced, you know, been pretty busy for the last week or 10 days. Um, and like I said, the, this, this weekend, at, you know, high 20s, low 30s is perfect reaping weather and I think, you know, probably be the busiest, will be the busiest weekend we'll have uh, this harvest year. And can you see this harvest going as, as long as the last couple of years? Uh, no. <laughs> Hopefully, if it does, um, yeah, there's a lot of breakdowns and a, a lot of rain and, and let's cross our fingers that doesn't happen. But, you know, from our perspective, this uh, this is my 30th harvest in the game and, you know, I, I, this one's pretty much a, a short, sharp harvest. It'll be an average year, a little bit above, and most of it'll be over, you know, by the end of November, very early December. So, you know, just on that point, I just want to wish the growers and the carries um, all the best of luck over harvest and, um, you know, let's let's make sure we manage our fatigue and, um, you know, uh, go into the festive season over Christmas with our families, you know, in a good frame of mind. So, Tim, obviously last year we saw rainfall, a lot of rainfall have, have an impact last year, not as much obviously this year at, at the times that they probably wanted it. What sort of impact has that had on, on this season? A uh, pretty severe impact, I guess, compared to last year, obviously, but... You know, we we don't have to look back far, you know, 10 or 15 years. You know, a lot of growers on the EP and, and even mid-north have only had sort of, you know, in the old scale, five to eight inches in the growth season rainfall um, or 100, 150 mil, you know, and, and Grandpa always used to say you can, you can grow a, a good crop on eight inches of rain, you know, if it rains at the right time. Well, really it hasn't rained for, I don't know, two or three months, you know, and, it's, and, and the plant's been living off of, you know, some moisture there from last year and... I've got to say, with with um, you know summer spraying, deep ripping, delving the likes, um, and and certainly plant breeding and genetics, you know we wouldn't be looking at a an average crop in the in the the rainfall that we've had this year without those benefits. So, you know the the industry's in pretty good shape. Um, I think the next focus is really seeing if we can scare off Jack Frost. <laughs> yeah, well, say so that that there has been quite a lot of frost um, issues around. Have you noticed that with with what's coming in, or what what are farmers saying about frost in in those areas? Yeah, there's been a bit of frost around. You know, not as much as last year, but from a quality perspective, screenings are, are low. You know, and we're seeing that um, coming through at the moment. So. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, across the catchment zone, there's a bit of frost around, but there's also some pretty healthy crops, you know, H1 and the likes as well. So, Are there many people storing on farm um, or are they bringing a majority of it in at the moment? Uh, probably bringing the majority of it in, um, given that, you know, uh, it's a it's a lower yielding season and, and trucks can go longer and keep up to the header in the paddock. So um, certainly we've got a, a myriad of carries that are available for for uh, growers um, to use and, and growers can ring me on that. But generally that's the, the dynamics of an average season. You can cart a bit longer and, and keep up to that, yeah. That's Tim Gurney there from Teaports and he was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. It's 12 minutes past 12. Well, trade talks between Australia and the European Union have once again failed. After five years of negotiations, Trade Minister Don Farrell has been holding the final round of negotiations with his EU counterpart on the sidelines of the G7 Trade Ministers meeting in Osaka in Japan. Australia wants greater access to the lucrative but notoriously protectionist market, but the EU returned with the same offer rejected earlier this year. 
The EU wants to impose new farming practices on Australian producers and ban Australia from using product names such as Parmesan, Mozzarella, Feta and Prosecco. President of the National Farmers Federation, David Jahinkis, tells Thomas Ariti he's still hopeful that an agreement can be reached. We're not going with the narrative that um, all hope has been lost in this round at the moment. We are understanding that there's still meetings being held, of which we've made it very clear of what our asks are around agriculture and noting that there hasn't been a lot of movement. But once again, we, we've been in constant contact with both Mr Minister Farrell's staff um, and directly with himself, and we're supporting his current stance and how he's working with industry to try to get an outcome. You mentioned there, you've made it very clear what our asks are. Just in, in brief, what would you like to see happen as part of this deal? What we're not seeing so far is a commercially uh, attractive deal for agriculture to get our agricultural products into what is a very large marketplace for us and so a marketplace that we already have very strong um, trading ties with. So when we talk specifically, it is around getting better access for beef, getting better access for sugar and getting better access for our cotton. Um, and overall, there is obviously other concerns around, as mentioned at the start, how we trade with the EU and what some of the regulations and asks that they have upon mm. Australian agriculture. Let's say this is dead in the water and, and the negotiations have failed. How will that affect farmers around the country? Well, once again, we're, we're not running with that at the moment. We're definitely I, I know you're not running with that line, but I know you're not running with that line, but surely you've, you've sort of mapped what could happen here if the negotiations fail. Potentially, these are hypotheticals, sure, but how would that affect farmers around the country if they do fail? Well, um, what we're going to be asked is that the conversations are adjourned and we can, can still continue to have those conversations. And obviously, if we're not getting good access to these markets, um, we'd prefer a no deal than a deal. So if the talks are heading in the direction that they are, we would rather reset, recalibrate and uh, ensure that we can still continue to do the trade that we have got with the, the EU and the current conditions and also make sure that um, any other trade agreements that are on the on the horizon also are beneficial for agriculture. So for us, yes, it will be a missed opportunity um, if, we, if we can't secure a better deal. But once again, um, Australian agriculture has many markets. Um, we would like to be participating in the EU market, but we're not going to do it at any cost. When we look at why it's been so difficult to agree to a trade deal, I mean, one of the issues is naming rights, right? I mean, the EU is not budging on these naming rights. I mentioned a few of them in the introduction, Prosecco, Feta, Mozzarella, Parmesan. Why is that such a crucial issue? How much would losing those naming rights cost Australian farmers, David? Well, there's a few um, parts to unpack there. First of all, it is the descriptor. When you go to the supermarket and ask for feta, everybody knows what feta is, everyone understands what it is, and everyone understands its characteristics. So to replace that with an Australian-based name would take a huge undertaking for just both education in the Australian market, let alone then how we would introduce that into our other markets overseas. And secondly, in Australia, we are a very um, inclusive culture. We, we have these names because we've had generations of... Um, immigrants come to Australia and bring their their flavours, their tastes with them and we feel that it would be a loss if we were to just give those those naming rights up, those those um, descriptor names without having some meaningful concessions back. So for us we're not interested in, in changing those names. Um, obviously uh, everything is 
needs to be negotiated and worked through, but we've got a sense that we, we are a part of those names as well. Our producers are a part of those names, and we have some wonderful product here that can only be described very similar to those um, traditional locations or those traditional ways of making these products. For us at the moment as a whole, um, we're team agriculture. We're looking to get the best deal we can for everybody. Um, and we're not sure exactly where that lands at the moment. And once again, we still believe those conversations are still have a chance, but um, we still want to have negotiations to continue regardless of the outcome. As the president of the National Farmers Federation, David Jahinki, speaking with News Radio's Thomas Ariti. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, South Australian Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young says changes need to be made to the Murray-Darling Basin plan before her party will pass proposed alterations through the Senate. An inquiry assessing the federal government's amendments to the plan will be held in Canberra tomorrow and Wednesday this week. Well, according to Senator Hanson-Young, buybacks will be crucial to the plan moving forward. Well, look, it's obviously uh, important and uh, good to see the Federal Water Minister going out to Menindee and speaking to locals about the the state of the environment and the river uh, there. But so much more needs to be done. The the government's current plans to change the Murray-Darling Basin management uh, won't deliver the water that the Menindee community or the Darling Barker needs. So we've got to make sure we fight hard in the Senate to fix the government's plans to guarantee that water will be returned to the environment so that we can avoid those devastating fish kills and the continued uh, destruction of the river and the environment in years to come. And how do you do that? Well, there's a number of things we need to, to do, but most importantly, we need to secure more water for the environment through buybacks and through uh, fixing the Murray-Darling Basin plan. A number of years ago, environmental flows in the Northern Basin were cut by 70 gigalitres. Both the Labor Party and the uh, Liberal National Party voted to allow that cut to environmental flows by 70 gigalitres, and uh, we want to see that reversed. That's the first thing that should happen, uh, reversing that bad decision, putting an extra 70 gigalitres into the river system and finding more ways to buy more water. And I think one of the things that was mentioned when you were in Menindee and uh, has been mentioned quite a bit and you mentioned just sort of touched on there vaguely, um, investment in the Murray-Darling Basin and some of those projects, things like fish ladders and, and amongst a number of other projects that would potentially help improve connectivity for fish in particular going up and down the river and particularly in Menindee. That's right. We need to make sure that our native species can flourish. We've got to make sure there's enough water in the river to keep the river alive so that fish and other species have a home to live. But then we need to make sure they can actually move throughout the river system uh, and do what they need to, to, to breed and to, and to thrive. One of the things the government should be looking at is how we can uh, invest in infrastructure and measures that allow that connectivity for native fish, fish in particular. Um, I'll be putting that on the agenda in negotiations with the Minister to make sure we look after our native fish. We can save the, the, the mighty Murray cod from going extinct and ensuring that we look after all the species. So for those who might not know, how will the Senate inquiry work? Will there be a number of experts who you'll be hearing from? How how's things play out? On Tuesday and Wednesday next week, the Senate will be hearing from experts right across 
the field uh, in relation to these plans of the government uh, to change the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It will, uh, the, the Senate hearing will hear from environmental experts, from scientists, from uh, government bureaucrats, from farmers and members of the local community, irrigators alike, so that we can get a, a broad uh, picture of what is going on, what people have concerns with and how we can fix the management of the Murray-Darling Basin so that we can keep the river alive. The government has put up a proposal, but it will not get through the parliament and through the Senate without the green support. We need to make sure the plan is robust. Uh, currently, it fails in a number of areas, and we want to make sure we can fix it. And South Australian Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, and she was speaking there to Bill Ormond. Well, do you use drones on your property? Maybe you use them for spraying or even mustering. There's growing uses for drones on farms and the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, or CASA, wants to know more about how and where you're using them so its regulations can keep pace. Heath McDonald is a remotely piloted aircraft system team leader with CASA. He explained why this survey is happening. CASA really wants to understand perspectives from farmers, understand perspectives from people that operate in farm and land management and know what rules work and what rules don't. Is it a concern that the regulations and rules around drone operations at the moment are necessarily keeping pace with the ways that people are utilising them? The Civil Aviation Safety Authority was the first country in the world to put in drone regulations. And so maybe some of them are outdated. And we that's what we really want to understand is if they are outdated and there are better ways to do things, it's best off that we also talk to the people that are actually flying these drones and operating them. Yeah, because when it comes to agriculture, would it be fair to say this is really one of the sectors where we've seen in particular a lot of uh, growth in innovation and ways that drones can be utilised? I think you hit the nail on the head there that, you know, 10 years ago we weren't probably even talking about drones, but now we see such an exponential growth in this field and we see a lot of benefits for farming and land management applications. And so it's crucial that we understand what those types of operations are and how our rules are made to to work for them as well. So why is it important, as you said, that Australia was one of the first places to to introduce sort of rules around drone operation and use? Why is it important to have those rules and regulations in place? Uh, CASA's main role is to focus on safety and rules and regulations make sure that people can operate safely and the Australian public feel comfortable that CASA is uh, focusing on being able to make sure these operations are safe. As part of this survey, uh, so you've put the call out, but who do you want to hear from essentially? Because there's a lot of people perhaps in a lot of different ag industries using drones. Who would you like to be part of this surveying process? So the survey that's available on our website is really focused on anyone in the industry now, but also anyone that's thinking of coming into the industry and using drones. We'd also like to focus a lot of our intention on farmers and people in land management or mustering or even spraying crops or pesticides. So our real focus is to understand the agricultural sector and but also just to make sure it is open to everyone. Yeah, and what kind of things do you want to hear from people that how they're utilising those drones? Look, the questions cover quite a, a range of uh, different areas, but we are keen to understand where you're actually operating the drones where you're thinking of operating the drones, how high you're operating the drones and also how many you have. And what's the sort of time period for this? 
So you can jump onto our website, www.casa.gov.au, move to our drones page, and you'll find a link there to the survey. You can have your say up until Friday the 17th of November this year, and we really encourage everyone to go on there and fill out the quick survey. Heath McDonald there. He is a remotely piloted aircraft system team leader with CASA. It's just going on 25 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. And Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hi, Hannah, and happy Monday. Happy Monday to you too, Selena. What does this week look like it's going to bring us? Well, so far, just starting off with uh, Monday, the logical place to start, <laughs> we've had a band of uh, mid-level cloud move through uh the northern agricultural area. It's now about the southern pastoral districts. We did see some isolated thunderstorm activity in this band earlier, but that has cleared and uh, we're just seeing isolated uh, shower activity associated with that, but not much reaching the ground. We also have a front that's uh, about southern parts of the state. It did go through at Mount Gambia around 7am this morning and has continued to move further north. And associated with that, we have seen rainfall totals up to 9am this morning of uh, up to 5 millimetres, the highest being at that 4.2 millimetres at, uh, sorry, since 9am the highest has been four at Coonawarra, but up to 9am we did see five millimetres at Robe associated with this shower activity. That will continue about the southern agricultural area, uh, but then contract to the southern coast as we head into the evening period. We do have some cold air still to push up, so there is the possibility of seeing some small hail about the lower southeast as we head into the evening period. There is also the possibility of seeing some thunderstorms developing about the far northwest of the state, uh, but not much rainfall is expected with that. Having a look at some of the temperatures that it's reached so far today, uh, Sejuna has been up to 20 degrees, Port Lincoln 21, similarly at Wyala, 24 so far at Woomera, at 30 at Cooper Pedy, 25 at Renmark, 20 so far at Clare, 23 at Murray Bridge. It's been up to 19 degrees at Victor Harbour and Kingscote and 16 at Mount Gambia. As we head into tomorrow, uh, we've got a ridge of uh, a high pressure ridge extending across the south of the state. So really we're in a southwest to southeasterly airstream for the outlook period. We'll see the showers start con to contract off to southern coasts and mainly during the morning tomorrow. But that upper level feature will uh, remain over the north of the pastoral districts tomorrow. So there's the possibility of seeing some uh, isolated showers and uh, possibly even a rumble of thunder tomorrow about the pastoral districts. Otherwise, we are just looking at those isolated showers about coastal parts. Uh, the winds will ease a little bit, but we will still see moderate to fresh afternoon sea breezes. And temperature-wise, uh, we're looking at generally cool to mild temperatures in the south grading to mild to warm in the north. So we're looking at 21 for tomorrow for Sejuna, 19 for Port Lincoln, 20 at Wyala, 25 for Woomera, 24 at Cooper Pedy, 23 for Broken Hill and Renmark, 18 for Clare, 20 at Murray Bridge, 18 for Mount Barker, 17 at Victor Harbour, 18 for Kingscote and 16 for Mount Gambier. 
then uh, we're really looking at stable conditions on Wednesday but we do have a trough that will start to form in the west of the state and that will extend through on Thursday and Friday. At this stage we're looking at the possibility of seeing some thunderstorms about the northwest associated with this trough and then some isolated shower activity in the west again associated with this trough but not much in it. So generally uh, up to midnight on Friday as an accumulative total we're looking at rainfall fall of generally less than two millimetres but we could see some local falls of two to five millimetres possible about southern coasts and also in the west associated with that trough uh, later in the week. Thanks Hannah. Hannah Marsh there from the Weather Bureau. Now having a look at the western inland of New South Wales for the upper western district tomorrow mostly sunny with southerly winds 30 to 45 k's an hour with overnight temperatures getting down to between 13 and 19 degrees. During the day, they'll reach up to between 26 and 33. For the lower western district, sunny tomorrow with southwesterly winds 20 to 30 k's an hour. They'll turn southerlies at 25 to 35 k's an hour and then drop back to around 15 to 25 k's an hour in the middle of the day. Overnight, get down to around 10 degrees with daytime temperatures reaching into the low to mid-20s. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. I hope you're having a great Monday so far. Coming up, you ever tried caviar? Do you know much about where it's usually sourced from? Well, South Australia is actually hoping to move into the sturgeon and caviar growing industry. How close is all of that to reality? We'll find out shortly. And are you someone who eats plant-based meats? Well, after some boom times, it seems the industry overall is struggling. Fundamentally, a lot of the products, many of them actually don't taste good. And as any large food company knows, if your products don't taste good, the long-term future of your product is in doubt. Is that the case for you? Is it taste or is it something else putting you off plant-based meats? And I know that term itself can cause some consternation, but let me know. Is it taste? Is it something else? Or do you love the taste of these products? My talkback number is 1300 222 Or you can send me a text at any time on 0467 922 But first, let's get some up-to-date headlines from Chris McLaughlin. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon, Selena. Qantas has rejected allegations by the consumer regulator that it broke consumer laws by selling tickets for cancelled flights. Its defence, filed with the federal court, says the ACCC's case ignores the realities of the aviation industry that airlines can't guarantee specific flight times. South Australian Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young says changes are needed before they'll support alterations to extend the life of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They're the subject of a federal parliamentary inquiry this week. The Senator says water buybacks remain vital to recovering environmental water flows for the basin, despite them being opposed by Victoria and New South Wales. Researchers are calling on state and federal governments to introduce mandatory salt limits amid figures showing Australians eat too much salt. The Grattan Institute says on average Australians consume almost double the recommended daily maximum of 5 grams. Former basketball superstar Magic Johnson's been declared a billionaire by Forbes magazine. He's the fourth athlete to join the exclusive club along with fellow NBA players Michael Jordan and LeBron James and golfer Tiger Woods. More ABC News at 1 o'clock.
Thanks, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Yeah, have you ever tried caviar? It's a delicacy that was once almost exclusively harvested from the Caspian Sea. Over the years of those stocks have depleted, other countries like China and Japan have moved into caviar supply. But if South Australia's Department of Primary Industries has its way, you could soon be enjoying locally harvested caviar. It's working with the federal government to add sturgeon and caviar to our state's already diverse aquaculture industries that already includes barramundi, tuna, kingfish, oysters, mussels and abalone. Well, I asked Perza's chief executive, Mehdi Darudi, why he thinks caviar could be a good fit for South Australia. We are the only state in Australia that we have a dedicated aquaculture act that really accommodates development of aquatic species. Uh, People can argue that it could be mainly in our marine environment. Uh, A lot of our aquaculture zones and policies are established in our marine environment, but we have the basis to also have a land-based aquaculture. And we do have very successful barramundi farming uh, uh, currently when it comes to land-based, we do have all the hatchery culture of kingfish before kingfish fingerlings are transferred to the ocean. Um, we did have for many years through cleanses tuna, also propagation and work of uh, southern bluefin tuna in terms of closing the life cycle of that species. Uh, South Australia has got that environment. We do have access to warm water because for a sturgeon, you don't grow them in a marine environment. Actually, in salinity of the oceanic water, they cannot survive. It needs to be fresh water to a very low brackish water. Uh, we do have the water. We do have the land. We do have the legislation. Um, I strongly believe South Australia could be a good base for the development of this emerging industry into the future. Mm. So given the way that they, they breed and, and their life cycle or where they, they tend to live, there wouldn't be sort of a risk of them um, getting into the natural environment and sort of taking over? They are not going to survive in our natural environment. Um, just to let you know about the process that we have taken, we started from 2015 when we put requests. When I say we, uh, I mean the South Australian government, we put requests to the Commonwealth for a live import for two species of bluegar and Siberian sturgeon to be added to the national live import list under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. But when it happened, it doesn't mean automatically you can import this species to the country. You need to um, get a permission under a biosecurity import risk analysis, which is happening through the uh, Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry. When we got the approval on their EPBC Act, then uh, we worked with FRDC, which is Fisheries Research Development Corporation, and we funded a project to look into the feasibility of um, this development in in Australia. Uh, The project showed that uh, biologically and technically to, to grow a sturgeon in South Australia 
and the fact that 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 study identified the risks associated with the import, that they are also manageable and fit the import criteria. After that, about 2022, we started the process with our colleagues in the Commonwealth government to make sure that we are going to have a conduct a risk analysis. We are expecting the result of that to be available by early 2024. And after that, it would be available to uh, people who put requests in and import either the eggs um, or the brood stock into Australia. Right. So it's still a little way to go, but have you sort of got a feel of whether there would be some commercial interest here in South Australia? Over the last, uh, I would say, um, nearly 10 years, we did all of that because of the commercial interest that private sector uh, was showing to us. Uh, I believe beyond South Australia, I heard in other jurisdictions also there is some level of interest. Uh, it's a very high valuable uh, species. Uh, the, the, the caviar uh, countries that they are producing that, they can trade that uh, up to about $1,000 American per kilogram of caviar. Um, it's a long-lived species. It's not one of those industries or a species that in a year or two you can harvest caviar. Uh, you need to wait uh, anything from seven to ten years before you can harvest your caviar. But the meat is edible and, and good eating meat as well. Uh, and if it's introduced to the market, there could be some good level of interest for its meat as well. What I'm trying to say, if commercial investors come in and put investment, they can harvest some for meat and, and get the business going until they get to the production of the caviar itself. Mm. And when they hit that point, then uh, all of those farms that we are aware of in other parts of the world, they are prof profitable businesses and they are producing quality caviar. What would be some of the main challenges though to overcome to really establish as an industry here in South Australia? The, the, the technology is established. The propagation of sturgeon, bluegar and Siberian um, sturgeon is not really anything new. It's just a matter of everywhere when you want to go and put a new system of uh, production in place. On its own, it could have some glitches in your system, in your water, in your pumping, in your climate. You know, and there are the matters that after one or two years of operation, a lot of companies, they will um, overcome and they understand what they are dealing with. The actual technology in doing and producing caviar is very well known and it's very well distributed around the world. It's just a matter of transferring that technology. That is Perza's Chief Executive, Mehdi Daroudi. So the state is awaiting the federal government's decision on allowing importation of sturgeon and a biosecurity decision, we're told, is expected soon. You're with Selena Green and it's just going on 20 minutes to one. Well, research could be expanded here into South Australia to help reduce the risk of extreme bushfires by determining soil dryness using river levels. University of New South Wales adjunct professor Rick McRae says the model uses soil dryness to determine the flammability of large fuels like logs. He told Sophie Holder the research has been done on rivers in the eastern states, but it could be expanded. 
wildfires during Black Summer made it very clear that the rule book is changing quite rapidly in terms of fire in Australia. And there's a lot that we have to learn and we have to learn quickly because the climate is adjusting at an ever-increasing rate. Looking carefully at the fire activity, there are a lot of things that popped out that were in many cases new in Australia. In many cases, they've been seen overseas, but we have to learn what we can and turn it into uh, operational intelligence tools as quickly as possible. So the scope of fires in the forests of southeast Australia is just without precedent. And there were climate and fire weather things going on that we really haven't seen before. We had a lot of fires making bad runs in the wrong direction. So we have to work out why these sort of things are occurring and most importantly, how to pick them up in the future. As we put it, if the ducks are lining up again, we can anticipate that and do whatever we can to help the fire services do their job and keep the communities safe. Now, one of the big things that we saw was that rivers are drying out, and increasingly researchers are talking about a thing called a flash drought, where you go from a, a wet winter to a very dry summer in a very rapid manner and that can catch people out. We seem to be in a flash drought right now. And the soil profile dries out, and that means it's not just the leaf litter on the surface, which is typically what we talk about as bushfire fuel, but even the big logs dry out, and they can contribute heat to a fire. And the more heat you get from a larger area, the more likely you are to get what we call an extreme wildfire develop, where the fire couples with the atmosphere above. And you might get a fire thunderstorm form that will punch through the stratosphere, or you might even get what we call a fern wind-driven fire. So think the Santa Ana wind in California and the bad fires they have there driven by these winds. We're starting to see it as a big problem in Australia. And can you explain a bit more? You mentioned that link to the river there. So is it largely when these rivers are drying out or is it also to do in any way with when we have seen that, you know, wet winter and there's lots, um, you know, of growth around the place? The key thing is the soil profile dries out. There's nothing feeding into the river. We had a big fire in the uh, southern part of the ACT in 1983. The hydrologist did some research there and we he showed that there's a particular thing you can see on the time graphs of river flows which says that the whole landscape's now dried out and you've got a potential for big fires. So I've been applying that to um, the modern situation. We're seeing that right now there are rivers in eastern Australia that are drying out in exactly that manner. And that's the basis for uh, what we call a red flag, that uh, we've got the potential for really bad things to happen. Out of 16 reference rivers, I think by the end of this month, eight of them may have dried out. That's a very bad place to be. And where are these reference rivers based? Well, it's quite tricky. Uh, You need to have one with a really long history of uh, record um, being taken, but you also need one that is not dammed or not a controlled catchment. And uh, we're looking for more and more of these. But at, at the moment, there's... 16 scattered, basically the the ranges between Brisbane and Melbourne, and we're looking to see which other parts. So right now I'm looking at Tasmania, but uh, maybe going over into uh, uh, South Australia, there might be more that can be added to the system. And what are you hoping that this sort of research is going to be able to achieve? There is the 
website at the moment, and uh, we've got the data and the analysis of the data there, and we do have warnings in place based on the thing at the moment because the way the oceans offshore from Canberra are, the way the, the, the land system has heated up over the last 12 months over Canberra, plus the way the rivers are drying out, there are a lot of indicators there of a real potential for bad fires to happen. So uh, the goal now is to find ways for the key stakeholders to work out how to take these warnings and turn them into uh, a better outcome if we get fires on that landscape, aiding our goal of keeping the communities safe and the, the assets, the community values. And you mentioned as well those sorts of flash droughts and that we are almost probably in one now. In kind of a changing landscape where we might be seeing these sorts of weather patterns, you know, potentially more regularly, why is this important at the moment? Well, as you say, things are changing and the frequencies of different things are changing. Unfortunately, it's not like we've got a new normal. We're, instead, we're on a path to somewhere and no one's quite sure where that path is going to take us. So we really have to keep close eyes on, on what's going on and try and pick out the key things we have to be alert to as we go down this path. It's a bit of a worry that we're doing this, but we have to uh, do whatever we can to monitor it. Dr Rick McRae there, he's an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and he was speaking with Sophie Holder. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, families whose children have to attend boarding school are fighting for an increase in the basic allowance that they receive from the government, arguing it's essential to keep families living and working in remote areas. A delegation from the Isolated Children's Parents Association its returned from meetings in Canberra with politicians to push their case. It comes as an online petition to increase the allowance payment by $4,000, build steam. Sally Brindle is from Minigoo, which is about an hour out of Geraldton in WA. She was part of the contingent and says the increase is needed to keep families in rural and remote areas. Yes, yeah, so what we're seeking is a $4,000 increase for the assistance for isolated children's basic boarding allowance. And that um, $4,000 will restore the original intent of the allowance which was introduced by um, Kim Beasley Senior by the Labor Party in 1973 with the purpose of representing 55% of the average cost of boarding Australia-wide. And um, in recent times, although it has increased with CPI, um, we need to restore that level because it's currently not sitting um, near that 55%. We want to preserve it going forward and that $4,000 will meet those requirements. $4,000 sounds like a lot. Is is that truly how much that gap is at the moment, Sally? Uh, most definitely it is. And, and the thing is that it's only a boarding allowance and what families are also facing um, is the ongoing increase of the tuition as well. So in having something that will assist with the boarding, which is obviously something that the children have to do out of necessity to be able to access um, education, is going to make a massive difference to parents. The the increase has just slowly got more and more over time between the difference of what families are having to pay for boarding compared to what the allowances are that they're receiving. You mentioned that there has been a CPI increase, but how long has it been since there's been a, an adjustment such as what you're asking for? 
according to my knowledge, I believe I'm correct in saying that there has never been a one-off increase to, to bring it in line. It has only ever increased in line with CPI. So this is quite an unusual request then. How were, were your concerns met by those who you've met this week? And we have um, received very good support um, in principle. We do have um, a lot of recognition for the costs that are involved and that it is a necessary expense. Um, so that has been it's been very encouraging, the, the responses that we have received. And, you know, it's especially important for those people that live within these rural communities that work in the local shops or work in the banks or nurses or, you know, that are employees that, you know, are really struggling to find the funds to be able to send their children away to boarding school because there is no high school within their area. You talk about this being a necessity because there are no local high schools which these students can access. They have to go away to attend uh, that further education what is the option for some people that you're speaking to if they don't get this kind of increase? What we're finding is that the the cost of, of boarding um, and attending the schools is just becoming so cost prohibitive that families are choosing to leave our rural and remote communities so that they can attend um, a local high school. And what sometimes happens is that the mother may relocate um, as soon as the eldest child reaches the age of high school and then takes all the other siblings with them, um, leaving the father at home. Um, so it's causing a disjoint between those families. But then we have other families where the whole family up and move and the parents, you know, look for jobs. And we really want to keep, you know, these families in our communities. It's a really important issue. So where do you go to from, from here, Sally? So we're hoping to have um, a meeting with um, Minister Richworth, who is the minister to do with the Department of Social Services, um, because the allowance is actually administered via social services. And we're just hoping that um, figures that we have presented that, you know, it's $4,000. And for the amount of students that we're looking at, it's not actually a big number in terms of the budget. We're not looking at every student in Australia. It's those geographically isolated students. So um, we're hoping that they'll look at the figures and understand the plight of families. And, you know, there's a cost of living crisis going on everywhere at the moment. And this is just one area that would absolutely help with the financial burden that families are facing. Can you put this rise in context for us? How much is the current allowance and what would this increase take it to? So the current allowance, um, basic boarding allowance, I think it's 9300 and. $86 or something there, about 9300 something. So this will bring it up to about thirteen, nearly $14,000 per family. It's not paying for the full cost. It's only, you know, representing um, about 55% of the average cost. So parents do still have a large commitment to be able to send their children away to school. So um, in the scheme of things, you know, it, it will, will help massively. Sally Brindle, who's a national counsellor with the Isolated Children's Parents Association. She was speaking there with Belinda Varachetti. And the ICPA estimates that this increase, if it went ahead, would amount to around $16 million overall a year. You're with Selena Green. It's just going on about 12 minutes to one or so. Uh,
Well, a few years ago, it seemed that the plant-based meat industry was booming. New products were constantly appearing on supermarket shelves and in the US, Beyond Meat has debuted on the stock exchange. At one stage, had a share price of over $230 US dollars. Uh, today, its share price is now about $5, and overall, the industry is struggling. Sales are down, some companies are merging, some companies have completely disappeared. Matt Brand spoke to food futurist Tony Hunter for his views on what's going wrong. He says a lot of companies were struggling with taste in particular. Well, I think the main thing we're looking at there, Matt, is that you know, fundamentally, a lot of the products, many of them actually don't taste good. And as any large food company knows, if your products don't taste good, the long-term future of your product is in doubt. It's as simple as that? I think it's as simple as that. I think that there's been a lot of um, hype around. My view is that for a product to be successful, I like to use the acronym TECH, T-E-C-H. First of all, it has to be tasty. Then it has to be easy to use and easy to find. Then it has to be cheap. And then it has to be healthy for the people and for the planet. If you get all of those, you've got a successful product and each one is a hurdle. If you don't get over the tasty hurdle, you're not going to have a long-term future. Tony, we've got some consumer data here from the US and it's clear that sales are down. Is it a similar story right around the globe, though? I think if we try and judge the entire plant-based sector and indeed the alternative protein sector on the basis of one company which everybody concentrates on which is beyond meat then we're missing the whole picture yes there are problems in the u.s there are problems even in the uk but germany is going gangbusters and so are other countries in europe so it's not a one size fits all of what's happening in plant-based products and we're seeing a lot of the supermarkets in europe like the little chain they're driving plant-based product prices down and quality up so does the plant-based meat industry have a future, Tony? Absolutely. And I think the key reason, Matt, these products have a future is that what we have is an undoubted fact. We're going to have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050 and a growing middle class. And we have this amount of protein that can be sustainably produced within planetary boundaries by animal agriculture. And we have the amount of protein we need. And animal agriculture simply can't scale to meet that entire demand without deforesting the planet, which I would suggest is not going to end well. So we need other protein products to fill that gap. And I think that's what it's about, the gap. The hype about destroying animal agriculture is not realistic. That's not going to happen. And I think that's, and to me, is really the nub of the entire issue with plant-based products. That's food futurist Tony Hunter speaking there with Matt Brand. You're with Selena Green. Let me see if I can do a correct time call for you now. It is five minutes to one on the Country Hour on this Monday afternoon. Well, a working dog competition held across Australia and New Zealand has proven that dogs truly run rings around their masters in distances covered in a day's work. Earl the Kelpie lives near Fingal in Tasmania and this energetic working dog has won the 2023 Cobber Challenge, clocking 1,343 kilometres over 21 days. That's around 70 k's a day. Claire Burberry caught up with Earl and his owner Alex Jones, the livestock manager at Fingal Pastoral. Uh, I come around it. I've seen it being done a few years, and I had a couple, uh, one of my mates done it, 
And then, yeah, we sent it on Facebook, so we put it through it, and away we went. So I went for three months, and they picked your 21 days out of your three months, and then, yeah, they went off your best, and that was your score. And how did they track Earl? He had a GPS collar on his, uh, around his neck, and it tracked it, and you got it on a GPS, and then, yeah, you just uploaded it and sent it through to the copper people, and they done it. Were you able to track his progress? I had some rough idea, but, yeah, you, they know, but we sort of have a rough idea of what he does. And I'm looking at your ute and you've got Earl sitting on the back having a bit of a yawn but you've got a few other dogs also on the back of the ute. What made you decide to enter Earl? Uh, Earl's just my probably one of my better dogs. He's the youngest. Um, yeah, he runs a fair few. He does quite a few bit of work for me. So, yeah, that's why I picked him, young and strong. So, <laughs> run bloody fast. So, that's ah, good. Good dog. What were you up to during the competition on the farm? Uh, we was just doing a bit of shear and um, had a new contractor come through and, yeah, he really put us under our paces. They're doing 2,000 sheep a day, so, yeah, we had to get a bit going. So we're on the beautiful property of Malahites in the Fingal Valley. It's quite a large property. Yeah, yeah, it's a big property with large-scale stocks, so, yeah, that's probably helped. So if Earl was to run from one end of the farm to the other, how long would that take him? It'd take him a fair while. It's about a a half-hour drive each way up and down the farm, so it'd take Earl a fair while to get up there, I reckon. Can you tell us a little bit about Earl, where you found Earl and how you trained Earl? And I believe he has a little bit of a slight disadvantage physically. Yeah, I bred Earl, so I bred him out of my two best dogs, and unfortunately we don't have his mother anymore, but, yeah, he's real good. He, yeah, he's... um, he trained off my best dog, which is his father, so that's probably an advantage to him. And, yeah, he uh, poked himself in the eye with something that I'm unsure of, and now he has a white eye. But he's still able to work pretty hard. Yeah, he's able to work hard. He just bumps into stuff sometimes on that offside. So Hopefully just some nice fluffy sheep. What does the winner get from this competition? Uh, so they put a little surprise in there this year. So it's uh, you get 12 bags of dog food for the competition and then a, a following 12 once you won. And then you get a free grand cash prize, a nice big trophy, and this year they chucked in a sneaky, you get a little pup, little Kelpie pup. And you were happy to welcome the pup? Oh, yeah. Very welcome. It's always good to have another one on board. Here. As Spingle Pastoral Livestock Manager Alex Johns chatting to Claire Burberry there about his champion Kelpie dog, Earl, a very good boy, a very hard-working boy by the sounds of it. All right, Sonia Feldoff is on your radio this afternoon. Hello, Sonia. Happy Monday. Uh, hello to you, Celia. Now, not a new problem, but a big problem. And we're talking about tradie shortages. And apparently it's worse here in South Australia than pretty much anywhere else in the country other than one place. Uh, we'll look into that a bit more. And you may well have had that experience yourself. We'd love to hear from you. Now, I don't know, uh, you were probably, I don't know, doing all the other things you do in an afternoon. But on, on Friday, um, I spoke to two people. One of them was a listener. One of them was a guest. Both of them called me Carol. Now, that would be referring to Carol Whitelock, who did this job before me. Now, she didn't hasn't done this job for 11 years. I've been in this role for 11 years. Now, as country town residents, I'm wondering, how long does it take before the newbie becomes accepted? Oh, that is a very interesting question. <laughs> I'll be very interested to hear the answers. Have a great show. Sonia Feldoff, and she'll want to hear from you on that one this afternoon. Thanks for your time. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.